Well, good morning. You guys have your Bible with you. Go ahead and get that open to Acts chapter 22. How do you know who's a Christian? And how do you know? Right? I'm assuming that we're here this morning gathered because we've got some ideas about something called Christianity. Probably a wise question for us today in the age in which we live is to ponder, how do you know who is a Christian? Because we live in a Christian nation, some people say, right? You've heard that. So does that mean everybody in the nation is a Christian? Does it mean we're majority of people in the nation are Christians? Does it mean that you're a Christian because you have had a particular history in your background, you were influenced by Europeans, and so therefore, all Europeans who had Christianity in their background, that makes you a Christian. Or in our politics, we have the, the Christian coalition. You've heard of the Christian coalition? Right? It's a voting block that it shapes and influences. You've got some elections coming up. You're going to be hearing from support and Thoughts from the Christian coalition. So if you're in the Christian coalition, does that mean you're a Christian? So, you know, how do you get into the Christian coalition? Does, you know, does, does some supernatural miracle have to happen for you to get into the Christian coalition? Or you just need to be in agreement with some ideas about life? And that, that makes you a Christian. What do we mean when we introduce someone as a good Christian man? Oh, he's a, he's a good Christian man. I, what does that mean? Because we obviously we felt the necessity to tag good with Christian man. So what are we describing there? Are we describing a miraculous spiritual event that took place in the person's life? Are we describing something that is uniquely connected to Jesus Christ? Or are we just describing if you knew this guy, you'd find him to be polite and respectful and a decent guy? And so what do we mean when we're saying, you know, who, who's a Christian? And, and then what makes you think you're a Christian? I'm kind of hoping by the time we leave here today, I'm going to de-Christianize several of us. In a good way, because it, it's, it's really a bad thing to think you're something that you're not. It's just a bad thing. You know, it's a... It's a I guess at best it's a form of craziness, right? I mean, when you think you're something you're not, you're a little crazy. But at the end of life, uh, you, you have an appointment. Everybody has an appointment. I don't know if you checked your calendar, but moments after your last breath in this body, there is a giant appointment on your calendar. It's with the living God, seated on a throne that governs the universe and judges all things. And so you will be stripped of all bank accounts. You will have no titles. 
won't matter whether you were vice president of this or owner of that or had the biggest house on the block or were thought by others to be the nicest human being they've ever met, you will be stripped and stand before that God as a human being, period. And you will give an account to him. In that day, it might be a very valuable thing to truly, truly be a Christian. And so today, we get the benefit of studying the Apostle Paul's life and his testimony and him giving an account of himself. And he's going to describe his conversion stories. I want to install that word conversion because it's very helpful. It, it says something about us that if it, you can't say that about yourself, converted, then Christianity as a label doesn't belong to you either. So conversion is not as common of a word, so I'm a little safer to pick on it. David Wells has written a very helpful book theologically. It's called Turning to God. In it, he says, if Christianity is true and if conversion is a part of its message, then those who have turned to Christ will have a story to tell. They will have experienced God's forgiveness of sins. They will know what it is to return in the rags and tatters of human depravity with no right to a place in God's house and find the embrace of God. They will know what it is to be accepted by the Father whose arms are open wide to be clothed in fine robes and to take their seat at a welcoming banquet. They will experience the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and will receive assurance of their salvation. If Christian faith is true, and it is, there will be experience of which we can speak. And what we have in the text today is the Apostle Paul speaking of his experience. He's going to provide for us a case study in conversion. So we know it's inspired by God. It's an accurate record of what really took place. And it helps us understand what conversion really is and what it really involves from his life. And interestingly, you know, the book of Acts, we're racing through 30 years here. We're getting to the end of the book of Acts. 30 years of activity at the starting points of Christianity Uh, taking off into the the world. And three times this story is going to take up space in this book. Three times. The story of the Apostle Paul's conversion gets repeated three times in the very limited space that we have here. So apparently conversion stories are significant. And if you're a Christian, you have a conversion story. If you don't have a conversion story, then you're not a Christian. It it just works that simply. If you're fishing through your mind to think, what's my story? If you don't have and you can't put your finger on an understanding of a conversion in your life, then you, you should be sitting on the edge of your seat this morning thinking, maybe there's something I've missed. And that's good news because maybe this morning the Lord's going to meet you in a way that's going to make an impact on the rest of your life. All right, well, of all that I could say about Paul's life, I just, I just, I'm going to pick up three characteristics of Paul's conversion stories, and I'm going to use the initials P-E-P, pep, right? So we're going to have a pep talk this morning, right? First thing we're going to look at, this is what's characteristic of Paul's conversion story, should be ours as well. One, a past person gets described in a conversion story. So there is a past person. 
The E is for an encounter with Christ. Anyone who is converted has an encounter with Christ. And third, anyone who's converted has a present reality or impact upon their life. A present activity of that takes place. So here's what I want you to do. Maybe on the top of your notes right there. If you're not taking notes, you're already in trouble. Um, Your lack of note-taking is bearing witness against your conversion. I just want to warn you, there's realities to conversion, right? So if you're not interested enough to pay attention, that says I'm, I'm, I'm part joking, but I'm part not. Right, when you show up in settings where the word of God is coming forth and there's no appetite, no attraction, no magnetic allurement there, you should be disturbed by that. Your life is sending you signals that you need to respond to them. Right? So responding would mean, okay, I got something to write with here. Okay, here's what you're going to write across the top. You're going to write down your pep exam. Right? You're going to put a little box next to the first box. You're going to put a past person. Write that down. And then in your next box, underneath that box, you're going to put an encounter with Christ. And then one more box underneath that box, you're going to put a present impact. And hopefully when you get to the end here, you can check all three boxes off. If you can't, then we have a question about whether or not we've really been converted or not. Let's explore Paul for a moment here. We're going to be in Acts chapter 22 first. Let's look at Paul's past person. Paul is going to describe to us a past person. There's some things about his life that describe truly who he was, but he describes them in the way that who he used to be. Right? And note, I think I put this in your outline, note the past person stands in need of conversion. No matter how you describe him, he's in need of conversion. Right? No matter what else you can say about the person, they may be noble, nice, or nasty. They need conversion. They could be religious or they could be rotten and be in need of conversion. David Wells says conversion is from an old way of life to a new and opposite allegiance. Right? That's what conversion is. So to have a past means there's something that no longer is characteristic of you. It's in your past. Now look here in Acts chapter 22. Paul, this is Paul's testimony before the mob in Jerusalem. He's going to give almost the exact testimony before King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26. And so this is why we're kind of blending these chapters together because it's covering the same emphasis. Here's his explanation to those who were in Jerusalem this day. Verse 3 of 22. He says, I am a Jew born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I was brought up in Jerusalem, guys, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be 
punished. If you fast forwarded to Acts 26, very similar, but little nuances. Verse 4, Paul says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. For they know for a long time, they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. All right. These are past tense descriptions, but they're, they're very informative for us because this is a man being described who is unconverted. This is a man in need of conversion, yet he is a devoutly religious man. He lived in a time where you were either monotheistic and you gave yourself to the pursuit of the one true God as a member of the nation of Israel, or you were polytheistic, chasing everything that you could name a God. And there was just such foolishness in that. Some of the most ridiculous gods that were out there. And Paul's able to one distance himself from these polytheistic God chasers who worshiped everything under the sun. No, 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 that wasn't me. I was a monotheistic committed to believing in the one true God who really did create everything. And, and in need of conversion still. And, and by the way, I wasn't just some slacker monotheistic worshiper like some might be. I was brought up here in this, in, in Jerusalem. You know, this is like, you know, if you're into politics, you know, living in Washington, D.C. growing up. Right? If, you're, if you're into monotheism and the worship of the God of the Old Testament, Jerusalem is the center of the universe. So, hey, I once, you know, I'm from Cilicia. You guys know a little bit about that place as well. But I was brought up here in Jerusalem under Gamaliel. I went to Harvard, okay? I got some, you guys know who Gamaliel, was a student of Gamaliel. I mean, that got attention. He said that for effect. And uh, I, was, I was a Pharisee. Wow. All right, the Pharisees, were the strictest of the strict. These are the guys who not only abided by the rules of monotheism, they added rules upon rules so that you couldn't get too close to breaking the rules because they were, they were strict in their devotion. He says, I was one of them. I wasn't like one of those liberal Sadducees, you understand. Those guys just with their crazy liberal ideas. I was devoted to this. And so you have a picture of a man here who, you know, for us, a lot of that language is we read it when it escapes. I don't know. Today, you know, if you grew up in New Orleans and you had a person who had gone through conversion and he stood in front of you and he said, listen, let me just tell you about my background. You know, I grew up here in New Orleans. And and listen, I wasn't like one of those casual church attenders who went to church on Christmas and Easter. We were there every Sunday. We were in church. I was raised by a strict family. We, we were devoted to what we believed in. When I grew up, I, uh, I, I went to Notre Dame and got my degree, and I'm a Jesuit priest. Right, that's what Paul said to these guys. That's what it sounded like in their ears. That's how it sounds to you. That's what it sounded like to them. That was his past. That was who he was. That was what he was converted from. See, he was, he was devoted and he was sincere 
And he went to war for what he believed. He was a man with convictions and he was convinced that his convictions were right. Right? It's easy for us to believe that people can be converted who just never really did believe anything, you know? Just nominal, never thought anything through, had no positions, couldn't defend, because they just never thought about religion. You know, I grew up, we never never thought about religion. Oh, well, it just makes sense that you just stumbled into being a Christian because you had nothing else. Paul had something else. He had something else that he was willing to travel, to get orders, to chase down people who believed this stuff because he believed they were wrong. You're wrong in what you believe, Christian. And he felt so strongly about what he believed that he, think, he thought, I need to oppose what you believe. I need, to, I need to arrest you. I need to get you off the streets. And if we have to kill you to do that, what I believe in is worth killing you to accomplish that. How many of us have a problem believing that? Somebody with such deep convictions and so convinced and so sincere is in need of conversion. All right, well, that's the Bible. That's who Paul was in the past. But Paul had an encounter with Christ. Right, David Wells in his book says, conversions of all kinds are commonplace in our world today. An alcoholic turns from drink to sobriety. Westerners afflicted with boredom renounce their way of life and seek meaning from Eastern gurus. One person joins a cult and closes the door on his or her prior way of life. Another looks for the power latent within and turns away from institutional religion. Although these conversions may be precipitated by dramatic crisis and result in changed behaviors, they are not conversions in any Christian sense. If they do not have Christ as their cause and object and his service as their result, they are not Christian. If they do not involve turning from sin to God on the basis of Christ's atoning blood and by means of the Holy Spirit's work, they cannot be called Christian. Right? Acts chapter 22, verse 6, Paul is living a life in need of conversion when this happens. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. All right, I'm not going to chase this, but I just want you to pay attention to theology hiding in the bushes when you read the Bible. Why did Paul hear and understand the voice while people standing within arm's reach of him did not? better hearing aid? If you got a good answer for that one, I'm interested in hearing it, but you're basically going to end up with an answer that sounds like that's what God chose to do. Because whatever God said to Paul and whatever he did in that moment was equally accessible to the people around Paul, yet they didn't get it. 
Aren't you grateful for the mercy of God that you heard when you heard? And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me, said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will. All right, back that up into the verse I just asked you a question about. Why did the apostle Paul get it and no one else around him did? Well, there's your answer. Because the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait, rise, and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name? Paul has an encounter in his life. Conversion has an encounter in life. But not just any kind of encounter. An encounter with Jesus Christ the Christ. It is an encounter with someone in particular. This is not, this is not some personal epiphany. This is not Paul having some event that made his life flash before his eyes. And suddenly he realized and he came home crying and his children were more dear to him than they ever were. And he resolved to love his wife like he'd never loved her before. That's not what happened to this man. Paul didn't become deeply nostalgic and all of a sudden just reassess everything about him. He didn't have an encounter with life circumstances. He had an encounter with a person. The person of Jesus Christ. We said this, this is Paul's message we said a couple weeks ago. Four words describe the hope that Paul had in his message. The Christ is Jesus. The Christ, the appointed one, the one who had to be appointed because everything was broken. The world was broken. The world was in need. So therefore God's plan was to appoint a fixer, a redeemer, one who would enter into the brokenness and pay the price to buy everything back so that there could be restoration to God because In spite of what we believe today, the world doesn't stand restored to God. The world stands at odds with God. The world stands away from God. The world stands at a great distance from God. And the most sincere person who Paul was needed to be converted and restored to God. He needed to encounter the Christ on the road to Damascus. Even though he thought he was serving God by killing Christians. He had an encounter with the Christ, the rescuer, the one who could fix everything. And that encounter produced in him, the third thing, a present impact. 
There's an ongoing present impact. Conversion is a moment that redefines our lives. It is not merely an event in the past, but rather a continuing event that began in the past. When Paul stands and gives this account in Acts chapter 22 and again in Acts chapter 26, it's been 25 years since his conversion. And Paul speaks about it like it's today, doesn't he? Matter of fact, Paul is in a mess of trouble and being accused and he's being put in jail and he's going to trial because he's living the impact of his encounter with Christ. 25 years later, it's not some lost memory. I remember when, yeah, I got this religious event that took place in my life, but it's, you know, it's faded like an echo and just sort of you really can't hardly hear it at all anymore in my life. It's as loud presently in his life as it's ever been. It's going gonna, it's gonna to take him all the way to his death. It's going to put him in dangerous situations because it still resonates in him. It is a present impacting reality. Douglas Birdsall says, when Jesus issued the great commission, he did not tell his followers to go into the world and ask people to raise their hands or to fill out a decision card. Rather, he enjoined them to make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything he had commanded. This requires an intensive and sustained investment in the lives of disciples to the end that every aspect of a person's life is supernaturally converted and reoriented in turning to God. That's what conversion is. It is a turning and a reorienting of life. It is a redefining of life. It is an event that takes place that in that moment, whatever you were, you have now become something else. Your life has been redefined. You know, it's interesting. Paul completes his trip to Damascus, doesn't he? I think there's an interesting little picture there. He encounters Christ on his way to Damascus and he continues to go and ends up in Damascus. However, for a totally different reason. I think that's a good description. There are many things in your life that God has placed and wired you to be a certain way. He's fashioned you and formed you with an intention. You, you, you hijack that as an unbeliever and you use those talents and gifts and abilities for your own glory and your own pleasure. And then you encounter Christ and be careful here. I'm not trying to say that, okay, now you got to jettison your past. So, you know, if, if you were an attorney when you came to Christ, you know, you need to go be an auto mechanic from now on. You know, just, you just need to go do something different so you've got a different story to tell. No, no. You're on your way to Damascus. Paul's still on his way to Damascus. Only now, he has a very different agenda in his life. And you may be an attorney or you may be an auto mechanic. You may be whatever. And you encounter Christ and you continue on your way, but now you've got a totally different agenda in your life. You live for a different purpose. Let me just capture one little thought here and sow a seed from Mr. Birdsall. He says, this requires an intensive and sustained investment in the lives of disciples. An intensive and sustained investment in the lives of disciples. Okay? I want everybody who says I've been converted to hear that. Making disciples 
involves consistent, ongoing, intensive investment in the lives of disciples. Now, my question is, who is making that investment in these disciples? Well, disciples make disciples. So if you're a disciple, you are making those investments in the lives of other disciples. I just I'm sow this as a seed. And we do twice a year. God has blessed us and given us grace to do the Alpha Course, which is, is just an organized opportunity for the church to reach into the pool of people that are in your life and bring them into a discussion about the Christian faith for 10 weeks with you, with the table that they sit at, with the, the messages that are being given. And, and what ends up happening is at the end of that course, many people get saved. Throughout the course, they get saved. And they turn their lives to God. And they begin their years of living as a disciple. And then Alpha ends. And out of our concern for these folks, that this needs to happen. We believe this. It requires an intensive and sustained investment in the lives of disciples. Watching people come out of that, we invented something called the beta course. Uh, Its intention is to help those who have taken an initial step into the kingdom of God take the next step and the next step and the next step in being disciples. And there is investment that needs to occur. Now, I love the fact that our church is is so evangelistic in its pursuit. We, we see the value. We recognize soberly the reality of people's lives apart from Christ. And we pursue people who are lost. And so there's, there's people who get drawn into things that we're doing on a regular basis. But, but, but we need to hear this as a church. We're, we're just not here to introduce people for the first time to Christ. We're here to make disciples. We're here to get them way down the road, way down the road. So we, we got to stop feeling like, hey, we, we got them to come to Alpha. And hey, and I helped out with Alpha this time. And, you know, hey, we served the evangelistic process of introducing people to Christ. Well, listen, that was a great investment. Can't say thank you enough for those who serve during that time. But not just those who have served in that setting, but perhaps those who don't serve in many settings need to hear a burden that there are people who get launched. And we're about to do this again. We're going we're gonna to start a beta group in a few weeks at the close of Alpha. And it's going to be filled with people who are taking their initial steps. Some of them not even saved yet. Some of them are into discipleship. And they need this. They need an intensive and sustained investment in their lives. And we need you to hear that because just, just had a meeting, just met with uh, Frank and Pete and Peter together just to talk about how can we be more effective in the beta process. And one of the things we all agreed on was one of the most effective things in helping disciples to maintain the course of discipleship is them being knit together relationally with others who are disciples. Well, you know, here they are needing some opportunities to knit needing people to join your life to theirs for a season. Maybe not marrying them, but at least for a season long enough to where you're going to walk with them, help them get established. Okay, that, that needs to happen. Every time you hear us use the word alpha and beta, this, this is a need. So 
So please don't, one, don't simply have a view of, well, if we just do the introduction to Christ thing through Alpha, we, we've, we've done what we need to do. Thank you for those of you who do. And maybe God has not called you to serve beyond that. Maybe he has. You have to wrestle with God over that. If you're not serving in a disciple-making capacity, well, then when you hear us use the word beta, uh, that's code word for you need to be praying about whether you're helping with this. That's what beta means, I think, in the Greek. It, it means don't just sit there, pray about whether you should do this. I'm pretty sure that's what it means. So please do consider that. Paul's life was a life of obedience. Acts chapter 26, his encounter with Christ, he has encountered him. And then he describes that encounter again in his testimony to King Agrippa in verse 19. He says, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds and keeping with their repentance. Paul's conversion produced an immediate lifestyle of obedience. That's what conversion does to us. It produces a lifestyle of obedience. You can imagine you're, you're the apostle Paul, the great apostle Paul. Okay, you're just Saul of Tarsus at this point. But you're, you're a man of some weight in the community of Judaism. You have an encounter with Christ. You get blinded. The next day, you're sitting with a man named Ananias. And Ananias is introducing you to this disgusting rite called baptism. Baptism? Paul's not encountering this for the first time. He's heard of these Christians baptizing people as a means of identifying them with Christ, as a means of drawing a distinction that once you were something, now you are in Christ, casting a shadow upon whatever it was that they were before. And so here's Paul, he encounters Christ, and the next day, he has this question asked to him from Ananias. Well, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul, why do you wait to be baptized? Obey God. Go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them, right? Obey God. And he gets baptized. As strange as that must have been, can you imagine he's heard and seen and watched these ceremonies and interrupted them perhaps and dragged people off from them? And he's about to be the guy going under. And he is obedient. Listen, this is a critical matter. I'm going to come back to it in the end. But conversion involves a life of obedience. From the moment I encounter Christ as Lord, I have given over the rights to make decisions to someone else besides me. I, I'm no longer a decision maker. It's helpful. Jesus encountering people, very helpful. His invitation never quite sounded like a, a moment right here, just do something right here, see ya, do something right there. Hope you make out well. Right, when Jesus encountered people, he invited them to do what? Follow me. 
a continuous action. Follow me. Well, you, you can't follow Christ without obeying him, right? Implied in following is wherever he goes, you're going. Well, what if I don't like where he's going? Well, you're going there anyway. What if I don't understand where he's going? Well, apparently you don't need to. <laughs> following means obedience. Paul's life, his present impact was a life connected to the gospel mission. In Acts chapter 26, as he's explaining his encounter with Christ, he explains the mission that he is on in his life. Verse 16, but rise and stand upon your feet for I've appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And I did not prove disobedience. I started out on the path immediately in Damascus and Jerusalem, then everywhere else that I could go. A life characterized by being on a gospel mission. Can I, can I just say this? I, I don't get Christians who have Christianity as a hobby. That, that's a strange thought to the Bible. That, that being a Christian is akin to me saying, I'm a Toyota driver. And I am. I'm a UNO alumni. And I am. Ask me how much that affects me on Monday morning. Ask me how defining of how I feel about myself, of how I treat another person, about where I'm going and where I'm not going, about how I'm going to spend my time and my money because I'm a Toyota driver. It's got no impact on my life. It doesn't redefine me. I didn't buy that car and go, oh, I'm part of the Toyota nation now. (laughs) Honey, we're going to need to meet and talk about some things that are going to be different around here now. I'm driving a Toyota. It's in my life. It doesn't shape my life. And I'm afraid for some Christians, saying you're a Christian is about as meaningful as saying I'm a Toyota driver. When you wake up on a a Monday morning and you decide how your week is going to go and where you're going to make time for this or that, when you sit in here on a Sunday morning and the guy passes a plate in front of you and you think about what you're going to do with your money, When you hear about evangelism taking place and the need for discipleship, there's nothing that goes off in you that says, that's part of my mission. That's my mission. I'm on that mission. Paul was on a mission. A converted person is on a mission. If you're here this morning, I want to unbolt the screws of Christianity for a moment. And if if you fall over, then fall over. If you're not on a mission... If there's not a present impact of an encounter with Christ that he was on a mission in this world and then he transferred that mission to his disciples and you, you met him and the transfer didn't occur and you're not on a mission, then be careful whether you can check the last box off. Because there's a present impact in reality of being on a mission as a Christian. Paul's life was a life that is no longer controlled by self-definition. This this is a sweet one here. 
Remember Paul saying this to the Ephesian elders we studied a few weeks back? He says, but I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. My life is not precious to me. If you're a Lord of the Rings person, that word precious has meaning, doesn't it? My precious. Listen, some of us are are like Gollum, you know. Our life is precious to us. We have plans for it. We are absorbed in it. We are strangely devoted to my precious. And should anybody try and mess with it, Gollum could get in quite a bad mood, couldn't he? If you mess with his precious. Well, Paul said, you know, what conversion did for me is, is it rewired me. It made my life not precious to me anymore. It doesn't have, I don't have that kind of self-obsession going on inside of me that I've got to further my cause and you got to further my cause and I got to believe in me and you got to believe in me and whoever I am is unique. Please tell me how unique I am. Find out how unique I am. Let me find out how unique I am. I'll go to counseling to find out how unique I am because you know my life is precious to me. It needs to have incredible value to me. And then I need to convince you for it to have incredible value to you. But Paul didn't live with those kinds of ropes tied around who he was. What a, what a wonderful thing for him. And listen, you might not have Paul's past. Maybe there's no dead Christians in your past. You might not have Paul's future. You might not open up the world to the gospel, but you have this in common with him. Every one of us does. Conversion, turns us from ourselves. If there's anything that happened in the Garden of Eden when sin took hold and the fall occurred, it turned man inward. His orientation and his creation without sin was Godward and outward. And the moment sin came in, it did this. Instantly, everything's now about me. It is a self-focused reality that I'm busy with 24-7 until I am converted. Let me just say this because Paul experienced quite a radical conversion, right? Everybody experiences conversion to be a Christian, but sometimes it doesn't look quite so radical. So I'm going to disturb some folks I know And I think I put a little note in here to clarify something. Radical true conversion is not at odds with genuine conversion of those who grew up Christians. It's not at odds. Because I know you've got some people here who grew up, by God's grace, you grew up exposed to truth. You grew up reading the Bible. You grew up with your life being lived a particular way. Or does that mean I'm not converted? Because Paul's got this radical conversion. He's got all these points to say that, hey, I I was way over here doing this. Listen, if, if in your life as a human being, you started down the road, which everybody does, started down the road of self, right? There was an off ramp. You weren't driving, but Adam and Eve were. And off ramp said self, and they said, okay. And they drove all of us onto the street of self. So we're all traveling down the street of self. Now, some of us had our foot on the gas pedal a little heavier than others. 
And so we just traveled farther down that road through the years. And then we meet God in conversion. And wow, do we have a story to tell. Do you know how many things we've passed along the way and how many gas stations we stopped at and how many ways we screwed things up? And then we meet Christ and we come to him and, and we, we tell our conversion story by sharing all the stops we made along the way. And Paul does that, right? I was killing people. I was here. I was, I was this great religious guy, right? So we've got stories, right? So interesting stories are here in the room. If you sit down and talk with people, you got some people grew up in a Christian home and listen, they, they're traveling down the road of self too, but they just never put their foot on the gas pedal as hard. So they, you know, they travel this far. They're looking at binoculars, right? My kids are trying to find how far I went. In just a few years in life, dad went way, way down the road. Uh, thank God I've only gone this far. So you get converted at this point and you've got this, you know, you got about a mile's worth of landscape to explain to people. It's like, oh yeah, I came to Christ. You know, I'm, I don't know. I was lying to my parents and stuff, you know. It's like, I mean, I was bad. <laughs> okay. And then somebody else has got this, you know, I, I murdered people and, you know, defaulted all kinds of money from folks and blah, 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 right? Both are conversion. Just one's got a little bit more colorful details to it, right? But here, this is important, right? David Wells clarifies something in his book, Turning to God. He says, the theological element of conversion is the same. The content of the gospel remains the same. It's the same Christ who has to be believed for the same reason The judgment of God upon sinners, no matter how far down that road of self you are, you're a sinner facing the judgment of God. That everybody on that road is going to get judged. So it doesn't matter how far you are, you're going to get judged. And the person who just went a few blocks is going to get judged too. In the same way, confessing our sinfulness and accepting God's provision in Christ with the same result, hungering for his truth and righteousness, serving him in the world. The difference in conversion stories lies not in what God has done for us in Christ, but in our process of turning to him. A child raised in a Christian home may find conversion so natural that he or she cannot pinpoint when this change occurred. For others, however, the transition is difficult. Conversion is dramatic and the consequences in the community may jeopardize the convert's life. The theological explanation of conversion is the same. The behavioral components, what a person does to be in Christ, are affected by culture, personality, worldview, prior lifestyle, and how hard your foot was on the gas pedal, running down the world of self. But regardless of the dissimilarities here, there are a few things that inherently are true about everybody who's converted, no matter how far you travel down the road of self. There is a conversion from self-rule that takes place, you're on this road because you want to run yourself. And you figured out which ways you want to run yourself. Maybe there are pleasures way down the road here, but maybe they're just kind of religious, decent self-rule, right? You grew up in a religious setting. You grew up around moral behavior. You grew up around people who applauded something besides smoking dope. You got applauded for making A's. You got applauded for good behavior, for saying yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. That's what motivated you, right? Your self-rule issues may sit in a decent or moral category. You may be religiously boastful, right? 
you know, come in, you know, strut your stuff about how much you know about cars or, you know, know everything about cars, man, everything. I grew up on everything. Right, okay, that's who you want to be. You want people that recognize that as well. You're somebody who grew up in the church, and so you know every Bible verse. You can quote every Bible verse, man. I know what the Bible says about that. You can argue doctrine. You even got a little doctrine in you, young man. You can argue that. So, you know, you can be just as boastful and as out of bounds with that material as you can be about boasting about the women that you've been with, baby. <laughs> they just can't keep their hands off me. It's just a different thing to boast about. But at the end of the day, your motive is exactly the same, isn't it? I want you to see how great I am. And let me just hone in on what categories you like to applaud. Oh, you like to applaud, you like to applaud Bible verses. Okay, I can go there. I can play that one. All right, that self-rule. You may not be some person who's taken advantage and ripped off a business partner and just put people out in the street cold. But, but you're a nice manipulator. You're just nice. You're just this sweet person who's learned how to flatter and pull strings. Because at the end of the day, you just want to be in control. You just want to control people. So you, you control them by flattering them and tell them. You've just learned, you know, hey, a little sugar goes a long way. I tell people what they want to hear. They give me what I want. All right, your motive is the same. Right? Your self-rule needs to be converted as well. And then there's self-righteousness. Conversion means turning from self, right? I'm on this road here. I'm shopping for ways to feel right about me. I want to feel right about me. So I'm just trying to figure out what makes that happen in my life. So you can be the person who feels like if I get a certain education, I have a certain amount of zeros behind the dollars that I make every year. If I... I'm accepted in a certain strata of society. If people speak about me a certain way, then I feel right. So those are the means through which I get to feel right. That's where I get my sense of self-righteousness from. Or you can be a person who grew up in a good, moral, Christian home setting. And all of a sudden you feel right about yourself based on how much Bible reading you're doing. How much moments you spend in prayer. Whether or not you serve, whether or not you've been an alpha. Some of you heard that thing, alpha thing and said, you know what? I haven't missed serving at an alpha ever. Just saying. And all right, so there's this sense of, I feel, I feel right about me. You understand, if, if you get your sense of feeling right about you based on something you have done, whether it's nice and biblical or whether it's just nice in the culture of this world, you are at odds with the righteousness that comes from God. Because you find your sense of rightness with nothing having to do with whether Jesus Christ became your righteousness or not. It's all about how you feel about what you've done. Listen, this is a real problem in the Christian life. Here Jesus comes to give us righteousness, accomplishes all that needed to be done in order to give us righteousness. How many of us wake up in the morning fighting for our sense of rightness with God? based on what I did or what I didn't do. Listen, I'm going to make a case for obedience in just a second. But do not become obedient to God in order that for you to get righteousness. That's not how you get it. Right? Paul was quite aware that he, he, 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but a righteousness which is by faith. You know, the kind you just stand there and it just plop, falls on you from God as a gift. The righteousness that made sure Paul didn't walk away from his friends on the road to Damascus and go, you know why I heard, huh? I mean, really, can anybody explain to me why the worst man in the bunch heard? He's got some travel companions. Paul's in charge of everybody. Maybe he's got some hatchet men, but Paul's going to tell him who to kill. And Paul's come from killing others. And he's got a passion for doing this. He is the biggest God opposer on the road to Damascus. Paul considered himself the worst in the world. Certainly somebody in his traveling companions is more worthy of Paul than Paul is to receive from God. But that's not what happens, is it? Righteousness falls on this man from the sky because God chose to give it to him. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law and what I've done, but a righteousness, faith in Christ. That's where his righteousness came from. All right, let me jump to couple of closing thoughts. I'm going to go visit those issues in a modern sense because you and I today have a problem with conversion and the way in which we understand it and the way it gets lived out in our lives. Douglas Birdsall says, in addition to the challenges that Christians face from those outside the church, we also deal with internal pressures to make the church more appealing and more accessible. Too often people are invited to come to Christ and to join the church in such a simplistic way that the process of conversion requires little by way of serious thought, little by way of a call to sacrifice, and little by way of a commitment to serve. Then one wonders why there is so little evidence of transformed lives, families, and communities. All right, let's go through our pep talk here. A past, well, today's conversions... There is a past that often lacks departure or an understanding of its wrongness, its need, or its deficiency. Whatever I used to be for some, there's a lack of departure from that in modern conversion. Whatever I used to be, there's a lack of awareness of what was broken about that. Why did I need to do anything? Why not stay right where I am? Right, that's the question I ask sometimes when Jehovah Witnesses come to my house. I tell them up front, here's who I am. Sometimes I don't tell them who I am. Sometimes I just let them go down the road real far and we have interesting conversations. But sometimes I tell them right up front, this is who I am. I'm, I'm a born again Christian. Explain how that happened. Explain my relationship to God. Explain forgiveness, etc. And then I ask them this question. So real quickly, just tell me, why do I need to hear anything that you have to say? Because I want them to attack my belief as well. I want them to tell me that there's something I need to be converted from. You need to move away from something. Christianity does that. So this is not just a Jehovah Witness thing. Christianity does that. Christianity looks into life and says, uh, that's either wrong, partially right, but mostly wrong, in need, deficient, but whatever it is, it can't stay. You're going to need to move on from that. That's what past features, right? So if you're here today, you were a Jew, a Catholic, a Jehovah Witness, or a Mormon in need of conversion. Here's my question for you. What was it about you that was wrong? What was wrong with your belief system that needed to be converted? 
Do you understand if you can't explain that, it, it reveals what you don't understand about the gospel? I don't know what I moved away from. Really? There wasn't something in the gospel that you saw that was distinctly different from what you used to believe. Well, then why not just keep believing what you've always believed? Well, I don't know. I like the people here and they serve good food. All right. You might not be converted. You just might like people who are polite and being amongst them. But you may not have encountered Christ. If you were a do-gooder, a churchgoer, a nice person in need of conversion, what was it about you that was wrong? Why do you need to change? Why do you need to get away from what you used to be and become something different? If you were a pothead, a thief, a liar in need of conversion, what was it about you that was wrong or in need? Oh, that was an easy one, right? I'm not sure the other ones aren't actually the harder ones. I had, I had an interesting past because I was a mixture of all that. Right? I grew up Catholic family, had beliefs that I thought were important, that I was convinced of, made choices to go to church, not just because I was forced to, uh, but sometimes because I chose to in my life. But then there was other elements of my life that were just morally depraved. You know, I was a liar and a thief and a pothead. So there was plenty that I quickly came to understand. I, I need to move from that. This is wrong. This is deficient. This, this doesn't put me right with God. Right? And the, the justification by grace alone should attack every religious system that exists on the planet today. There's not another one who preaches justification by grace through faith in a perfect person who lived a perfect life and satisfied the wrath of God. There's no religion out there. Every other religion puts in your life the responsibility to do right in order to be right. So if your religion does that, whether you're doing right is... Uh, making the trek to Mecca and bowing down five times a day in the Muslim faith, or whether you grew up in New Orleans and you think you got to do a rosary and go to confession and make sure you take communion. If it's based on what you're doing to be right, then you have a righteousness that's derived from the law, from you doing things. And Paul said, that's not righteousness. And you, you're not right by doing that. You're going to need to depart from that. And listen, when I departed from pursuing God that way, uh, I, I actually studied what I left more carefully than I ever had before to see what, what is it that I'm moving away from in this. And you should do that as well. An encounter today, an encounter that often lacks clarity. People encounter Christ, but it often lacks clarity. Clarity, what exactly are you encountering when you come to Christ? Was it an encounter with emotion? Was it an encounter that got you halfway there? And this is what I mean by that. An encounter that puts you in touch with your life is broken and the world is broken. Can I listen? That's still not an encounter with Christ. 
That's an encounter with reality. That's an encounter with your life doesn't work real well. Your life hurts. It's painful. And, you know, I remember when I was a youth pastor in the early 90s, we would go to some big conferences, take all kinds of kids with us, effective communicators, effective youth communicators. But I I began to notice something that would happen in these meetings. The gospel was in the meetings. You definitely heard about Jesus Christ. You heard about the cross and what he did and forgiveness, etc. But this is kind of how the meetings would flow sometimes. The guy would begin his message. There'd be elements of a lot of cultural realities for teenagers, then presentation of Christ or something from scripture about what he did and your need for him. And and then toward three quarters of the way through, 80% through, often a, a very impacting, dramatic story gets told, perhaps from the speaker's life. I remember one particular incident. A story was told about abuse, just relational breakdown between parents and kids and abusive situations and distance. And it was just accurately portrayed very well. Moments later, there is an altar call for people to respond. And kids came forward. Lots of our kids who were with us came forward. And, you know, if I come pray for somebody, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not assuming that they're following the same instructions that we're giving because I don't know what they're responding to. So quite often I would ask kids, all right, well, hey, man, what's going on? What'd you hear? How can I pray for you? And quite often, you didn't get a description of seeing Christ. You got a description of the brokenness of their own life. My mom and I are going through this right now. My parents are going through a divorce, and I don't know what that's going to be. Right? The description is, my life is broken. Okay, you're halfway there. And that's significant. Okay, I'm not trying to say, hey, well, let's just sweep that under the rug. That's not important. Now listen. If you don't get to that point, you won't take the next step because the Christ is a fixer. That's what he does. That's who he is. He's appointed to fix the fall. So if you don't get that the the world is fallen and broken, if you don't get your life is broken, you're not looking for a savior. You're looking to be rescued when you're in need of being rescued, right? How many of you guys remember post-Katrina, post-Isaac, how many of you guys had new eyes to see Entergy bucket trucks? <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, they've been there all along. They passed you on the highway there everywhere, but you never had interest in them until you're out of power for about two weeks. And you're daily just sitting there sweating like crazy. And then all of a sudden there's a rumor, there's a bucket truck two blocks over. <laughs> you're kidding me. I'd get in the car. I'd drive over. Hey, hey, man, what's going on? You know, you are my hero, Spider-Man. Dude, can you get me some power? Why was I interested in bucket trucks? Because my life had a big, big need. I never saw bucket trucks before. Sorry, no no offense, but I never even knew you existed out there. Until I don't have any power. Somebody's got to fix this. All right, listen. So if you get halfway down the road of gain, you know, my, my relationships are broken. Life hurts. I'm despairing. I, that's a good place to be because you're in touch with being a fallen creature in need of encountering the Christ on the road to wherever you're going. The Christ, the fixer, the one who came with authority over everything. 
the one who demonstrated that authority. If you want to figure out why Jesus did the stuff he did in the Gospels, it was just to demonstrate I've got authority to do everything that I want to do. Right? So watch this. The wind, yeah, I created that. Watch this. Shh. Those demons over there, you know, the ones that y'all can't figure out who they are and what they're doing and why they mess people up so bad and you talk to them and they turn around and beat you up, make you run off in your underwear. Those things, watch this. Be gone and they're gone. Why did Jesus do all that? People dying of diseases in their body and Jesus just touches them and the death is over and the the disease is done. Why did he do that? Because he just thought, oh, that'd be a cool trick. People talk about that kind of stuff. It was a demonstration of his authority. I've got power over everything. And I've got power over you. I can fix your life. I can fix your world. Right? Some people encounter all kinds of things in their life. It doesn't mean you encountered the Christ, the redeeming rescuer who will come into your world and change your world. Now, let me finish with this thought. Eric, you can get ready to come back up here. All right, our last little box is a P that has to do with a present life impact. All right, now please listen carefully. Listen very, very carefully. Paul's life was immediately, immediately and forever impacted by a new way of doing life. He became obedient to God. From that day forward, his life featured obedience. Not a debate about whether the lordship of Christ carries obedience with it, which is what's happening today. Not the Christian world where many people come with broken lives to encounter something that will touch that, but have no concept of being obedient from this day forward. Conversion P-E-P. It has a past, it has an encounter, and it has a present reality going on in it right this moment. The great commission for every Christian is go into all the world and preach the gospel, making disciples of all men, teaching them to what? Observe all that I have commanded. Commanded. Do you understand that, that, that the God of the universe issues demands? Somehow we have so twisted this into, hey, Keith, I love the part where I'm broken and there's a fixer. I, I like that part. And it's a big part. And it's a very important part. But it's not the only part of the story. There's a, a book that was written a few years ago by John Piper. It's got a really edgy title. He tries to defend it in the beginning. The title is What Jesus Demands of the World. What Jesus Demands. How do you like that word? God demands something. Go into all the world and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. All right now, just think for a second because this is where that box may become an empty box. Because the number one present reality has got a lot to do with your obedience. Whether or not you choose Christ and follow him, follow him today as you did into a confession of him being your savior. Follow him today. Right? There's 50 chapters in this book. I won't read a 
but just a couple of them. Here's the commands. You must be born again. Repent. Come to me. Believe in me. Listen to me. This is where I said, if you didn't have a pen when you came in this morning, listen to me. Sit down and make yourself available for me to speak to you. Listen to me. Do you understand that when you and I can sit and, and disclose that, oh, I don't know, I don't have time, I'm not reading my Bible, blah, blah. Do you understand? I'm not listening. I'm not obedient to the God who demands that I listen to him. And I can dress this up in all, you know, and, and, I, and I don't think it's wrong to dress it up in the fact that listening to God is the best thing that will ever happen for you and me. It's the wisest thing I'm ever going to do. All right, now you got a reason. How about if I take that reason away? How about you just listen because the God of the glorious universe says so. And he demands it of you. Well, I don't know if I like a God who demands things. Well, then you might need to reconsider whether or not you'll put your faith in him. That's who he is. If you met him on the road to Damascus, you'd have fallen to the ground, shaken in your boots, freaked out, but converted. Abide in me. Take up your cross and follow me. Take your first step and pick up that instrument of death upon which you will more than likely be nailed and follow me. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Worship God in spirit and truth. You know, worship's not an option. It's a matter of obedience. Making a big deal out of God. Singing at the top of your voice. Saying great things about God. Stopping, observing, taking a photo, staring at it over and over again because you want to draw out every detail of the picture of God. That's worship. And we're commanded to worship. It's not like, hey, you know, those of you guys that are really emotional, touchy-feely kind of people, y'all, y'all get about that worship thing. Y'all sing real loud when Eric leads. The rest of y'all, there's nothing like that in the Bible. We're commanded to worship God. Always pray and do not lose heart. Always pray. You always pray? Well, you know, do not be anxious about the necessities of life. All right, um, I'm disobedient in that one, right? I've got like a hobby on the side where, you know, I just practice being anxious. Just draw aside for a moment, gather some thoughts, yeah, anxious thoughts, yeah, worried about that. Yeah, that's not going to work. He's not going to, pretty good at it. If you need some lessons, let me know. Do not be angry. That's the command. No matter what story is accompanying and justifying why as I feel like I could be angry. Do not be angry. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Give to the one who asks. I mean, do you understand this is an interesting list? It's the commands of God. And the question is whether or not I'm postured today to follow him. Am I following him in these matters. Is my conversion, got a P at the end, a present day impact. I'm following Christ in these settings. Listen, where there's a lack of following, 
there is a problematic diagnosis of conversion. So if you look at your life and it's like, man, dude, I'm like 0 for 8 right there. But you, you should not walk from here comforted. You should not sit in here week in and week out and thinking, I'm doing the Christian thing. If there's not a present impact of a true encounter with Christ, then you have every reason to believe I swung and missed. I walked an altar and made a decision out of my brokenness and with the hope that just acknowledging that I'm broken, I'd get fixed. No, 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 no. You get fixed by encountering the Christ who is the Lord whom you now follow for the rest of your life. Now everybody look down at your boxes. How are we doing on our pep exam? All right, first, are you convinced that your life is broken? That the past life of whoever you have been Apart from Christ, are you convinced that's broken? That's in need. That's wrong. That's at odds with God. I need to turn my back on that. That's your past. That's probably the easiest box to check, but it's got to get checked. Second box Have you encountered the Christ? Have you looked to Christ as the rescuer, the redeemer, the one who pays for your sins, the one who makes you right with God, makes you completely right with God, doesn't make you somewhat right and then you get right. He makes you completely right with God. He's appointed uniquely to be for us what we desperately needed him to be. He is that, and we have encountered him. And our lives were blinded by him at some moments. And then the last, is it your intention to follow him? Is it your intention to follow him? Do you have in your heart a desire to follow him? Listen, please hear me. I'm, I'm not talking about sinless perfection here. I'm not a bad Methodist. I expect that everybody who says yes to Christ does what these guys in the Bible did, fall on their faces from time to time struggle with sin from time to time. But you'll know this. You'll know this in your own heart. When you begin to get in agreement with sin, does something in you rise up that hates that? And you linger in it. You make room for it, but you hate it. And something in you wants to go to war. But maybe this is your first war, and so you're eager and you throw punches and you fight wickedly against that thing but maybe this is round 18 with that thing and you stand up from the chair and have a little harder time lifting your gloves, but you're still in the ring because that thing is not going to be who I am. Even if I don't throw punches as quite as well as I used to. There's something in you that wants to follow Christ no matter what. If that's lost in you, then your conversion has got a problem in it. A serious problem in it. Here's what I want you to do. And I don't want anybody to do this hastily. In America today, I think every Christian needs to think about answering some altar calls. 
Because I, I think, and I'm going to say this, and you're going to hear me say it a lot in the future. I, I think we're becoming a church and a nation full of people who are asleep. Spiritually, we're out of touch. Our culture is so loud, so down-pulling that we have a hard time knowing what up is anymore. So maybe we're sitting here today, we've been lulled into a life that doesn't at all look like I'm following Christ. I can't point to the last time that I wrestled with my decision and surrendered it to Christ and said, you know, Lord, no matter what, this decision is your decision. Whether it costs me, whether it's got questions in it, whether it hurts me, threatens me, makes me feel insecure, whatever it is, God, it's your decision. I follow you in this. I can't remember the last time I did that. Wow. Maybe you need to be converted. So here's here's what I want you to do. Whether you've been converted, not been converted, I want you to think about that that last question. Because the first one's pretty easy. I know my life is broken. I don't know if anybody in this room would say, well, that's the one that I didn't check off because I think my life's pretty, pretty perfect. Can we check that one quick? I hope you have an accurate understanding of the Christ and who he is. But to say that you're trusting in that Christ means you will follow him. But see, I don't follow when I feel unsafe. I don't follow when I feel threatened. Well, then you don't trust the one you're following. And if you don't trust him, it's because you don't see him correctly. And if that's bad enough, then you really don't believe in him as a savior. That's a little sobering. Here's what I'd like for all of us to consider. Jesus Christ stands before our lives and he issues an invitation for you to follow me, the Christ. Follow me. From this moment on, trust me, hope in me, follow me. All right, now think about this carefully because think what that is going to mean. I don't want to read all 50 of Piper's chapters on you. But it's going to mean those areas of life, you're going to say yes to Christ, whatever it is, tomorrow next week in that relationship with your money. If that's really who you are this morning and that's really what you believe you want to do, I want to follow the Christ, then I want you to stand up right where you are. Think carefully. Is that really what you intend to do? Some of us have been playing this Christianity thing for so long, it's kind of like, yeah, well, yeah, I'll say yes in this meeting, but I'll say no to him tomorrow, just like that. Okay, if you're planning to say no tomorrow, do not stand up. Well, Keith, you're saying I'm not a Christian? I don't have a stethoscope that can tell me that. But if you've got no intention of following Christ, then there's something about what you believe about him that's broken and not right. I'm hoping Dr. Mike's not the only Christian in the group here. You understand this carefully. Your standing doesn't make you right before God. You understand that, right? 
because you get really screwed up in a message like this. What you just did to stand doesn't make you right before God. Righteousness, rightness with God is received by something somebody else did. He stood and put his arms out and said, nail me up. That made you right before God. But what you do today is significant because the Bible treats it significantly. Saying yes to following him. Giving over your life to him completely. Intending to walk in obedience tomorrow, next week. Not negotiating with God. That matters. Because it really makes a statement about whether or not you really do trust the one you're following. No matter how hard that's going to be, if you really do trust him and follow him matter what. Let's pray together. Father, we are reading the story again of a man's life in scripture who 25 years after an encounter with you on a road to Damascus was vibrant, effective, living reality for who he was. Lord, so vibrant, so effective that nearly 2,000 years later, we're still talking about his conversion. What a meaningful moment. Lord, would it be that our lives would be lived as those who are truly converted. We know what it is to have a past. I once believed. I once was. I used to be. Many of you knew that about me. Lord, we can tell the story about the encounter that we had with the Christ. The moment of becoming aware that there was a redeemer, a restorer, a fixer. Someone came to fix it. I see who it is. It's Jesus of Nazareth. God, we remember that. Lord, we may remember it because we went way down the road of self. Remember the day that we did a U-turn. Or we might remember it because we just went a few blocks. We grew up in a Christian family. Didn't travel far. But our hope was in the Christ. And Lord, our prayer... Our need, the world's need, is that there would be a present reality of that. That conversion would be a present impact. Lord, it wouldn't just be us talking about whether we walked an aisle one day, whether we signed a card. It would be about whether I'm following Jesus this morning. Whether I followed him into this church this morning. Whether I followed him to pick up a Bible. Whether I followed him to serve someone in my life. Whether I followed him by restraining my emotions. Not harming someone with my words that I thought they deserved. Whether or not I followed him by loving my enemies and doing good to them. Lord, how desperately this darkened world needs converted Christians to follow Jesus. Lord, would you make Lakeview Christian Center a bunch of people that are just following Jesus moment by moment, day by day. Because Lord, we have put our faith and our hope in the Christ. He is Jesus. 
Amen. Amen. I bless you guys. Y'all have an awesome week. Thank you.